Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue And a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. During the season of Lent, we are looking at Jesus, the healer. The thing that was initially most obvious about Jesus was that he was a healer. Everybody knew that Jesus was a healer. Even his enemies acknowledged that he was a healer and they tried to use it against him. In the story of Jesus healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, we look at Jesus who is the perfect revelation of God, and we ask this theological question. Is the character of God revealed in the power to harm or heal? Presumably, this synagogue we're talking about is in Capernaum. This text doesn't specifically say, but just the flow of the story seems to indicate that this is the synagogue in Capernaum, which I have become quite familiar with and have spent some time there even in recent days. So it was the Sabbath, and as Jesus' habit and practice was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But Sabbath, once Jesus began his ministry, always brought a certain tension. Because even though Jesus was observant with the Sabbath, his enemies did not believe that Jesus kept the Sabbath properly. Now on this particular Sabbath, there was in the synagogue a man who had a withered hand. Everyone was aware of this. And everybody knows that Jesus is a healer. And so the question is, will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? His critics will say, oh, that is a violation of the Bible. The Bible says you can't work on the Sabbath. And so will Jesus do the work of healing on the Sabbath? That's the question. Now, to make it even more insidious, the Pharisees who were present in the synagogue, they were hoping that Jesus would heal the man with the withered hand. Not because they cared for the man, 
Not because they wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle of healing on a human being that needed healing. No, they were hoping that Jesus would heal the man with the withered hand so that they could accuse him. That's deeply satanic. I mean, the essence of the satanic is accusation. And so they are hoping that Jesus will heal the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath because in their interpretation of Scripture, that is a violation of what the Bible teaches, and then they will be able to accuse him. Jesus understands that this is the situation. He calls the man with the withered hand forward. He stands there with Jesus and all the eyes of the synagogue are upon these two, the one who is the healer, the one who is in need of healing. And then he asks a theological question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? And he looks around and it's crickets dead silence. No one will answer. And this arouses anger in Jesus. And Jesus was grieved at the hardness of heart that does not prioritize mercy above all things. We don't always know the right thing to do. We like to pretend, you know, that the Bible is some sort of magic answer book and it always tells us what to do. There's all kinds of situations where we truly don't even know what the right thing to do is. How many of you know that's true? That you want to do the right thing and you're not even sure what it is. Here's my counsel. When in doubt, err on the side of mercy. If you're not sure, should I, should I go for mercy or should I go for judgment? Err on the side of mercy. Is it possible to be too merciful? I, I suppose it could be. I mean, I suppose I could imagine scenarios where in good faith, you are extending mercy and maybe it was too much. Still, that's the error I'm going to make. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if when I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus says, BZ, I'm looking at your record here, and I have a number of occasions where you acted with too much mercy. Now, if that were to occur, I would just try to keep the smile off my face. Because what I want to say is, so what you going to do? Jesus will say, well, with, with the measure of judgment that you judge, it will be judged back to you. You were merciful, so I'll be merciful. That's how I think about it anyway. Well, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand after the dead silence, because the Pharisees wouldn't answer the theological question, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored. What a beautiful word, restored, restored restoration. There's a beautiful word in the Greek New Testament that I've just been falling in love with and using in my vocabulary more and more. Apocatastasis. Can you say that word? You might stumble over it the first time. You know, you got to work on it. Apocatastasis. It's fun to say. Apocatastasis. 
You find that the apostle Peter uses that word in Acts 3.21 when it says what we're waiting for is for heaven's intervention through Jesus for the apocatastasis, the restoration of all things. That's what it means. The rest of, that all that has gone wrong, God is going to make right. Apocatastasis, that's our eschatological hope as believing Christians that in Christ God is going to set all that has gone wrong to right. But the story ends not just with the healing of a man with a withered hand, which should bring great delight to all that witness this wonderful miracle, but rather with the Pharisees entering into a conspiracy to destroy Jesus. I'll tell you the truth. There are some who will oppose you if you proclaim God to be better than they think God is. I know that actually from experience. There are some who will oppose you if you proclaim God to be better than they think God is. I know that in many ways, but especially with the publication of my book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Most people love the book, you know, but there was always, a, there's going to be a certain strain, a certain sect that says, uh-oh, I got to get on YouTube. I've got to make YouTubes about this heretic talking about God having, having loving hands and dealing with sinners in a loving way. Yes, I know that there are some who will oppose you, even vilify you if you proclaim God to be better than they believe God to be. Well, the Pharisees base their opposition to the word of God, who is Jesus, on their interpretation of the Bible. That's an odd sentence. The Pharisees base their opposition to the word of God, who is Jesus, on their particular interpretation of the Bible. They saw in the Bible verses about not working on the Sabbath and to them it was just evident that to heal is to work and you're working on the Sabbath and therefore it's all wrong. I mean, you could read the Bible that way. They did. Here's the thing though. The Bible is the revelation of God only when read in the light of Christ. Did you hear that? The Bible is the revelation of God only when read in the light of Christ. Read apart from Christ, the Bible can seem to portray God in a different light as capricious, mercurial, or angry, violent, and retributive. If the way we read the Bible isn't significantly influenced, even altered, by what we see in Jesus, we're reading the Bible in a way that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3 as having a veil over our mind. If you don't read the Bible in the spirit of Christ, there's a veil over your mind and you'll read it wrong. Read with a veiled mind, the Bible can seem to portray God as capricious and mercurial, angry, violent, retributive. And here's the problem. If we believe that God actually is angry, violent, and retributive, then we can believe that our anger and our violence and our retribution has divine sanction, that it is just and holy. Now, with this in mind, I want to look at another story in the Bible about a man with a withered hand. 
Because this isn't the only story in the Bible about a man with a withered hand. The other story is in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings, in the Old Testament, chapter 13. This occurs when, and it involves Jeroboam. I gotta give you a little history here. Uh, the first king of Israel was Saul. And then Saul is rejected and David is, becomes king. And then David's son Solomon becomes king. And then there is a split, a civil war. There is a split in the kingdom. The son of Solomon, Rehoboam, ends up in the south with two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And that kingdom is known as the kingdom of Judah. And then there's this Jeroboam who takes 10 tribes from the north and begins to lead them and they become known as Israel. But King Jeroboam, king of Israel, he's afraid that people are still going to go to Jerusalem to worship and that they might then decide that they want to have Rehoboam as their king. And so he kind of starts his own religion that involves worshiping golden calves, bad idea. And, he's, and he has two places of worship, up north in Dan and, and then in the southern part of Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Of I'm, Too much geography here, Brian. It's like you're doing a tour in Israel. Just stop it. In Bethel. All right, we'll skip over. I'm still, I'm still in tour guide mode. But anyway, the point is that King Jeroboam has set up an idol. And that's when a unnamed prophet came from Judah to confront Jeroboam, and this is what happened. The hand that Jeroboam stretched out against him withered. And the confrontation between an unnamed prophet from Judah and King Jeroboam, the hand of Jeroboam was withered by the prophet. Now, that the prophet later restored Jeroboam's withered hand doesn't alter the initial impression. The initial impression is that the power of God is sometimes wielded by human agents in the direction of harm. And this has consequences. If we read the Bible apart from the superior revelation of Jesus Christ, and then we're faced with the question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? We might very well answer, well, sometimes we are to harm and to kill in the name of God. And this has occurred throughout history. But Jesus saves all that is to be saved. And Jesus saves even the Bible from being just another violent religious text. When Jesus heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, it's not just the man with the withered hand who is healed, but it's our understanding of God that is also healed. God is not the one who harms. God is the one who heals. Somebody say yes to that. Amen. Now, if we want to use the Bible to justify harming and killing instead of healing and restoring, it's actually easy to do because you have all of these texts where if you want to use them, you can use them as warrant, as proof texting for doing harm to others in the name of God because, quote, it's in the Bible. But if you want to use the Bible to justify harming and killing instead of healing and restoring, yeah, you can do that, but it's also contrary to the spirit of Jesus. And that's a big deal. People often ask me, 
what translations of the Bible I recommend. And I say, well, I, uh, for most of my writing and sermons and preaching, I generally, my day-to-day Bible is the New Revised Standard Version. I think it's one of the best English translations. But I also, I also like the New Living Translation. It's more accessible. People that may be somewhat new to the Bible, I usually point them down that road. Uh, new Living Translation. Uh, but I also have, I really have a, an affinity for, for King James and the beauty of that language. And so maybe just update it a little bit with the new King James. And so I can talk about that. I like that too. But here's the main point. The spirit we read the Bible in is way more important than the translation we read the Bible in. Oh, that, that's a good one right there. That's, that's your tweet. The spirit we read the Bible in is way more important than the translation we read it in. So what translation do I recommend? The Jesus anointed spirit translation of the Bible, whatever that is. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus as you read the Bible. I'll give you another story to make the point. So Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem for the first, for the final time. This is what we focus on a lot during the Lent. Jesus is going with the 12 and other Galilean disciples up to Jerusalem for Passover. Yes, but more than Passover, Jesus is on his way to become king and he, he will arrive there cresting the Mount of Olives. And we'll celebrate this next Sunday, Palm Sunday. Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city with the shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus is on his way to become king, but he's going to become king by crucifixion. He tells his disciples that they either don't believe it or don't understand it. But they're on their way to Jerusalem and going from Galilee to Jerusalem. More geography here. Going from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have to go through the land of Samaria. Samaria. Well, see, what had happened was the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom, taken them off into exile. Eventually, some of them, some of the Jews taken into Assyrian captivity returned, but they had now begun to intermarry with others, and they began to break off from the Jewish people. They're cousins. They share a common ethnicity, but still they're ethnically different. And now they have a religion that has a common root, but it begins to evolve differently. And in this, in the time of Jesus, there was deep, deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Not unlike the tension and conflict between Israelis and Palestinians today. And so Jesus is having to travel through the West Bank, but we'll say Samaria, on his way to Jerusalem. It's a several day journey, so you need to find hospitality in villages along the way. And Jesus and his disciples arrive at this one particular village of Samaria, and we're told that because Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem. Now, one of their theological disputes between the Jews and the Samaritans was where the most appropriate place of worship was. And the Jews said, well, clearly it's the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans said, not so fast. It's on these mountains of Samaria that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worship. And that came up in the conversation, remember, with the Samaritan woman at the well. 
Once she realizes that he's a prophet, she said, well, you know, I've had this theological question. You Jews say that it's the temple in Jerusalem where you're supposed to worship. But we Samaritans say, no, it's the mountains of Samaria where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worship. What do you say? And he said, woman, the time is coming and now is when neither in the temple nor in these mountains is going to be the issue of where you worship God. For God seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's that whole theological thing, tension. When, when you have ethnic and religious conflict, that is where the devil can be the most devilish. And so based upon a religious ethnic conflict, a particular Samaritan village, village refuses hospitality to Jesus and his band of disciples. To which James and John, these are the sons of Zebedee. These are two of the three most intimate disciples of Jesus. You always hear about Peter, James, and John. This is that James and John. Whom Jesus has nicknamed sons of thunder. I wonder why he named them that. I'll give you the answer. When James and John received this slight, this offense of being rejected a Samaritan village and say, no, you can't stand here. They said, let me get it right. I'm going to quote it. They said, Lord, shall we command fire to come down from heaven to destroy them? See law. That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. They weren't just making this up. It's in the Bible. Second Kings chapter one. The king of Israel, King Ahaziah, wants to arrest the prophet Elijah. And so he gets, he gets an officer who has a platoon of 50 soldiers. And King Ahaziah says, go find Elijah, put him under arrest and bring him here. And so the captain with his platoon of 50 soldiers goes off, they find Elijah. And the captain says, oh man of God, you're under arrest. And Elijah said, yeah, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn up you and your 50. Boom. 51 dead people. King Ahaziah sent out a second captain with a second platoon of 50. He shows up and says, oh, man of God, you're under arrest. Yeah, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 again. Now we're up to what? 102 dead people. Kings and prophets both can be very stubborn people. King Ahaziah said, okay, you take a platoon of 50, go out and arrest that guy. So for the third time, this occurs and this third captain, he's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do the whole thing. You know, you're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say. No, he just says, oh, man of God, come on, have mercy. I'm just doing a job here. And the irascible prophet, Elijah said, all right, okay, I'll go with you. And it all turned out. It all worked out. It wasn't, there wasn't any great problem except for the fact that 102 people were killed because Elijah was grumpy. 
And that's the story that's in the Bible that James and John pulled out as a text. They said, hey, 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 Jesus, shall we call fire to come down from heaven? Because, you know, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Listen, listen, listen. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's the spirit of Jesus. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it has the spirit of Jesus. We're not told that God sent fire from heaven. We're told that Elijah called down fire from heaven. He said, well, can he do that? Well, we can. We call it bombs and missiles and drone strikes. Fire from the heaven. It's not from God. It's just humans have figured out how to call down fire from heaven and Elijah did it before us. Don't ask me to explain it all. Well, I'll just let the text speak for itself. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, that they had been rejected by the Samaritan village, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy the lives of human beings, but to save them. So James and John had Bible verses for calling down fire from heaven and destroying the Samaritans. They had Bible verses, but they didn't have the spirit of Jesus. So when they say, can we do that Bible thing, Jesus, that biblical thing, the biblical thing, the prophet Elijah, the prophet Elijah did it. Can we do the biblical thing that Elijah did and call down fire from heaven and consume them. Jesus, I rebuke you. You don't know what spirit you are of. I know what spirit you're of. You're you're of the spirit of the Satan. I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save lives. So the question isn't, can we find it in the Bible? The question is, can we find it in Jesus? You can find anything in the Bible to do whatever you want. It's a big book. There's a lot going on. The question ultimately isn't, can we find it in the Bible? The question is, can we find it in Jesus? The Bible employed without the spirit of Jesus can be used as an instrument of death. The apostle Paul talks about that and he says it like this, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Or as David Bentley Hart literally translates that passage, our competency is from God who also made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of scripture, but of spirit. For scripture slays, but the spirit makes alive. It's not the letter of the biblical text that has the final authority, but the spirit of Jesus. When we have the spirit of Jesus, we can handle scripture properly in a way that heals and restores and gives life. If not, we can use the Bible to bring death. And some of you, some of you grew up in churches like that. And some of you that are online with us, that's why you're online with us. Because for whatever reason, you found yourself in situations where the Bible was used as a means of death. And you found we're life and we're a lifeline to you. So for right now, I just say, hang on to the lifeline. That we're going to do our very best not to use the Bible as a weapon of death, but rather in the spirit of Jesus, we're going to work with the scriptures to bring life and healing and restoration. Amen. 
So an angry prophet withers a man's hand. But Jesus undoes that vision of God by restoring a man's withered hand. An angry Elijah calls down fire from heaven to burn up his enemies. But Jesus undoes that vision of God by rebuking James and John when they suggested it. So the question is to harm or heal. The answer given by the spirit of Jesus is of course to heal. Amen. Stand up with me. So I don't want to just uh, preach on how Jesus heals and doesn't harm, brings life and not death. I don't want to just preach on that. I also want to give you an opportunity to reach out for it. What is it? Just take a moment. What is it in your life that's withered? Is your joy withered? Your hope withered? Your sense of the presence of God withered? Whatever it is, I'm going to ask you, just, we're just going to take a moment and just bring that, that withered thing. That, that, that which is good, supposed to be good, our hope, our faith, our joy, our sense of the presence of God. That's good, but, it, but it's withered. It's shriveled up. It's not right. Well, you're in the synagogue today and Jesus is here. You're in church today and Jesus is here. And Jesus is saying to those that have some aspect of their life that's withered, come here, come here, come here. Just come to me, come here, come here. And if Jesus asks this congregation, what should I do on a Sunday morning? Should I heal or should I harm? This congregation is going to say, Jesus, you should heal. Go ahead and heal. We're here for it. Heal them, Jesus. So just, just, just picture that which is withered in your life just in your own feeble weight, stretch it out towards Jesus, lift it up. Jesus, we bring our prayer life that's withered, our hope that's withered, our faith that's withered, our joy that's withered, our sense of your presence, that's whatever it is. Maybe it has something to do with our relationships, our marriage, whatever it is. We bring that thing that is withered. It's supposed to have life, but it's withered. We bring it to you and we stretch it out. And Jesus, we ask that you would do that wonderful thing, that wonderful world. Restore. Apocatastasis. Restore, Lord, restore. Restore that which is withered. Jesus, stretch forth your hand to heal these who stretch forth that which is withered unto you. May the healing begin today, here and now. And we give you praise and glory for it. Amen. And amen. Aren't you, so, aren't you glad that Jesus is so good? That he's a healer? That he gives grace? That he gives mercy? Amen. And now we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Participate in the, the meal that communicates the life of Christ to us. In the broken body communicated in the bread. In the shed blood communicated in the cup. Let's prepare our hearts by first of all, confessing together our Christian faith. Join with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the gracious forgiveness of our Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. 